Welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No, no, no. We take part ourselves. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. Uh, that's right. You're waiting for Carrie Poppy right now. This is Ross Blotcher. I'm here not by myself, though, because today we have an interview with the one, the only, Brian Dunning. Welcome, Brian Dunning. I was told he was looking for someone as pretty as Carrie, and I was the only one he could think of. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're the bell of the ball today. <laughs> Welcome. Well, you've got a timely documentary that's just coming out right now. That is true. I say timely because Do we, go on. we just had a UAP hearing, an unidentified anomalous phenomena hearing in Congress, and you were ready with a documentary about UFOs unidentified flying objects. These are synonymous terms with slightly different imports. But yeah, tell us about your film, the UFO movie They Don't Want You to See. It's the good emphasis on they. It's all caps, the right? They don't want you to see. Yeah, you are, you are correct. I am one of about 200,000 independent filmmakers with a <laughs> documentary about UFOs right now. It was obviously a super hot topic the last few years since they started having these congressional hearings and everything. It's all everyone's talking about in some quarters of DC and on a lot of the TV networks and on a lot of podcasts. So this is something I've reported on a lot. And I, I should I should say that I did not set out to make a movie about UFOs. Okay. As you know, my podcast, Skeptoid, it's a, a critical thinking podcast. It's the, the true science, the true history behind urban legends and lots of fun stuff. Any fun story people have heard, here, let's go dig into the real science, the real history behind yeah. what's going on. So I'm basically a science writer is what I call myself when people ask me what I do for a living. And the the mission of i mean we're a nonprofit and we have our mission statement is is to help people understand what's real from what's not by making fun entertaining content helping people learn what's fact from fiction science from pseudoscience so that's the perspective that i came about to make we we, we always got a documentary film in production and it was time for another one i said what should i make a movie about and i asked a bunch of friends and everyone said ufo's so it's like, okay, well, what can I talk about that's going to be actually beneficial for society mm -hmm. uh, that's on the topic of UFOs? You had just released a film last year, Science yeah. Fiction, and that was all about how, well, let me tell you what your movie is. It was all about how uh, experts get brought in, <laughs> scientists get brought in to talk about their area of specialty by TV producers, film producers, and are taken out of context, misquoted, clipified to the point where they're saying things that they never intended to say. And this is a problem in science communication. Sometimes it's quite deceptive. They, they will chop up what a scientist says on their TV show to make it sound like he said, why, yes, scientists do believe that aliens built the pyramids. <laughs> and then these people get very upset about it and they make noise on Twitter and they have their universities complain to, to the TV networks and uh, they just say, hey, sorry, you signed a release, bub. Mm -hmm. You know, we can do whatever we want to do with uh, with your footage. And so, yeah, that's a that's a practice that I don't think enough people were aware of. And so we felt it was important to make a film about. So that film, Science Friction, that's available on all the streaming services now. Yeah. Go see it. Yeah, yeah. So we were done and it was time to make the next one. Are you producing a film every year now? Is this the new Brian Dunning pace? That's the idea. I mean, 
COVID kind of shook up our company. We've got almost all different employees post-COVID than we had pre-COVID. We didn't really get anything done during the years of COVID. It's funny because Science Friction was edited and ready to, ready to distribute in 2019. And then COVID hit. Ah. And we're shopping it around town. And everyone says, oh, I can't wait to see what you guys have about COVID in there. They, well, the movie was made before COVID, so we don't have anything about there. And the feedback was, you guys have to have something about COVID in that movie. Because oh, no. if you don't, uh, it's going to be a huge glaring hole in the film. Mm. And if you do, then everyone's going to want to see it. So we actually went back and during COVID, we had to shoot some more interviews and cut those into the film. And that's why it ended up coming out in 2022, even though it was done in 2019. Wow. Okay. And this whole time, you've also been, you mentioned, producing Skeptoid, a weekly show. You've been doing this since 2006, before the iPhone. <laughs> as, I guess that's true. <laughs> as far as I know, you've never missed a week? I did miss one week in 2007, the week that my sister died. Oh. I give myself a pass for that one. You get a pass for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Other than that, um, yeah, it's been a weekly show. That's actually my day job, <laughs> working for Skeptoid Media and doing the doing the podcast. Amazing. Oh, I've sung the praises of Skeptoid on this show before, but I, I should do so again. Because you do a really good job of finding one of these urban legends, these popular myths, and it, it ranges through a lot of topics, but there's a lot of overlap with our show and what Carrie yeah. and I cover. And you do the research and you you boil it down, which I'm in awe of, down to like 10 to 15 minutes of just like, here's the facts that you need to know. Here's the setup. Here's what we actually know about it. Is it still an ongoing mystery? Or, hey, did we actually solve this one? Yeah, thank you. I'm, uh, it, I, I love how compatible our two shows are and yet so different. I mean, it's been more than once when I've listened to one of your shows or one of your series before I was doing an episode on the same topic. And, and I think, it, I think the, the reverse goes both ways. Absolutely. Oh, I'll always check like, oh, did Brian cover this before? Because (laughs) it'll be a really quick encapsulation. That's really pithy that there's, it's all solid content. Whereas Carrie and I go off on all these diversions and I I was doing a little bit of math here, like looking at how long our show has been going since 2011. We don't release every week. We, we skip a lot and I calculate we're very close to 500 hours of Mm. content. And I think you're probably at roughly half that just because you know how to compose short form digestible content and we don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 actually writing episode number 900 right now. That's amazing. And so that's an average of about 13 14 minutes a show. So someone else do the math, I'm not going to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think this conversation we're having right now will be episode 383. So there's the math for you. Okay. <laughs> it's very impressive. I always think of um Blaise Pascal, mathematician and also theologian, but he he wrote to somebody once and said something to the effect of, I apologize that I did not have time to write a shorter letter. Shorter letter. Yeah. <laughs> I it, love that. It takes time to really whittle things down. So yeah. it's a it's a fantastic resource. Ross just stood up because we're on Zoom right now. We can see each other. He's wearing a Skeptoid shirt. What am I wearing? Oh, I'm wearing a different Skeptoid shirt. <laughs> yeah. We're, I'm going to want to talk about that design because you wear that in the film. I do. Yes, uh, uh, good point. It, it, during in the film, I'm actually in the UFO. I'm not in all of our movies. Usually, I just produce, but I'm 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 in this one as the presenter, and I wear a black or dark gray sweatshirt with a, a logo on it that shows a ghost <laughs> is better than no a rocket 
is better than a ghost. So yeah. the greater Zam symbol. And and the way I read that was maximum fun is greater than Snapchat. That's what you meant to say, right? <laughs> well, the, that's that's the great thing about that design is because it is the ultimate conversation starter. Oh, I bet. I never wear this shirt out in public that someone doesn't say, hey, what does the shirt mean? And I say, what does it mean to you? And if they're dumb, they say, rockets are better than ghosts. <laughs> hey, maybe it's got a deeper meaning than that. Oh, space ghost. I get it. No, come on. <laughs> keep going. But people come up with some really great ones. I always just say science is better than pseudoscience. That's how I phrase it. But lots of people come up with really clever ones. That's great. I love it. Well, let's talk about this title. Actually, early on, as you were planning this film out over a year ago, you were workshopping titles and I got included on an email yes. you sent out where you were you were playing around with ideas. And when you had said the UFO movie they don't want you to know about, I instantly thought of Kevin Trudeau because he's written books like Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About, The Weight Loss Cure They Don't Want You to Know About, Debt Cures They Don't Want, and so on, you know. Yeah, it's it's become an old joke. Yeah. It's a parody of itself. (laughs) But I think you were also trying to do something where you were making the film perhaps more accessible just from the title alone to people who maybe weren't within the skeptical fold, who had unformed opinions about UFOs and thought, you know, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, I actually want to talk a lot about who the movie is for Mm -hmm. and why and how. But yeah, someone added that title to the list of titles (laughs) that we were all workshopping As as a joke. Yeah. Right? And then when we kept voting and voting through these different rounds, consistently, it was the overwhelming winner. People liked it. And I go, okay, come on, guys, this is a joke title. (laughs) But it's the one everyone's talking about. It's the one everyone remembers. Okay. And I kind of realized, you know, you can't buy that. When When you're looking to title a movie, if you've got a title that everyone talks about and everyone remembers, go with it. Smart. Smart. And it actually does make sense from one of the points that I make in the movie, talking about, you know, why would anyone not want you to have a better science-informed opinion about UFOs and the physics of alien Mm -hmm. visitation and all that stuff? Because maybe they have an agenda as well. (laughs) Think of all the TV shows, Ancient Aliens. Yep. Their ratings would go way, way down if everyone in the audience was a scientist. As you underscored in the film, the TV producers... They don't care about what's true. They care about what keeps you watching. Exactly. So there actually are people who would rather you not have a science-informed opinion about these questions, these great cosmic questions. So the title actually makes sense. I was chuckling as I texted you because I was trying to abbreviate your film so I didn't have to write out the whole thing. (laughs) And it ended up being T-U-F-O-M-T-D-W... Y-T-S, which the is... The first time someone... Because te- that's not the first time someone's texted me that. Hey, how is blah, 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 <laughs> going? And I'm going, what the hell is this? Pro- I, I I didn't even recognize it. It's like, oh, that's my movie. That's the title. Wow, it is pretty long. I, I did you a favor. I looked through lists of films with long titles, and I found other movies with 12-syllable titles. You ready for this? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Most of these have uh, colons somewhere. Yeah, these are all like a, a like a title and a subtitle. <laughs> Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Okay. Veggie Tales, The Pirates Who Don't Do Anything. <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. And uh, that's good enough, but 
There you now go. Now I have to ask you, did you find a list of movie titles with the number of syllables written out, or did you personally, did you use some strange brain feature that you have no. to just seek titles in the count of syllables? No special hardware required, but I did find there was a website that had a list of certain syllable count film titles, but they gave up around 10, and then they just had 10 and more. <laughs> so I went through and I did you know the finger thing like I'm making a haiku. <laughs> this is how I spent part of my afternoon. <laughs> I'm, I'm touched so let's talk about this film i uh well first of all you drove out to the desert a place that i associate you with you you like the desert you're a desert i'm a desert rat yeah i was gonna say dweller that's your happy place right it is i i, I love the california desert you were heading out to some where was that yeah some specific telescopes radio telescopes yeah. where were those so the the main the main set piece in this film was shot at the owens valley radio observatory Okay. Actually shot outside of it. So Okay. And is that where you were interviewing yeah. the experts you were talking to? Uh, no, we actually did them at, at wherever they actually do their work. Um, okay. We talked to uh, Dr. Caitlin Rasmussen at the 107-inch telescope that the University of Texas has uh, outside of El Paso. Uh, Miles Curry happened to be working with her. We didn't even know he was going to be there. So oh, we interviewed great. her him at the same place. Dakota Tyler, our astrophysicist, um, actually fl flew him up to Bend, Oregon, where I live, as there is a little local observatory right here where my daughter was actually working at the time, teaching all of the astronomy programs. And um, so we, we shot that just right here, kind of locally at a friendly location. And all the other places um, were just kind of all over. For the uh, flight instructor with the NTSB, we shot that in the air over Washington, D.C. and hmm. Virginia. And, and how Bidlack, he's based in what, Colorado? He's in Colorado. And the funny thing is... So Hal Bidlack was a missile officer way back in the 60s, 70s? It doesn't matter. And the, the, the missile facility where he actually worked part of the time has now been taken away from where it was, which I think was in Wyoming, brought to a museum in Colorado Springs, oh. coincidentally where he lives now, Whoa. and placed in a museum at an Air Force base there in Colorado Springs. So and he, he said this would be the perfect place to shoot the interview. So his secure workplace followed him. To his retirement is, Isn't that something? Yes, that's absolutely true. <laughs> and he, of course, knows everyone who works at, the, at that museum. And I spoke to them on the phone. They said, yeah, this would be great. Come on down and shoot it here. No problem. Uh, but we are on a military base. And so I'm not sure if there's any permission you might need to get. Well, long story short, I ended up having to go through the, I forget what it's called. There's a Department of Defense has a Hollywood liaison office oh. in Los Angeles. And if you're shooting anything on any military facility, any branch of the service, you have to go through them and buy a permit through them. And uh, they would not even let me submit a permit. Really? Apparently, they're only interested in talking to Tom Cruise. They said, it has to be one of the major studios. Oh. Send us your studio deal, and then we need to see your script. Well, it's a documentary. There is no script. And so they said, I'm sorry, until you have those things, we can't uh, discuss getting a permit. Ooh. So we were unable to shoot it at the the only place that made the most sense, right where Bummer. Hal Bidlack lives. Yeah, uh, and it was it was going to be so perfect. So we ended up shooting it at the Wings Over the Rockies Museum, which is also there in in Denver. And they were just lovely people. Okay, uh, they were super accommodating. They were very easygoing with the the filming permit. So yeah, we had a I had really great experiences everywhere. Okay, everywhere that I went. Of course, the best was Plains, Georgia. 
I was at the home of President Jimmy Carter. Oh, you were actually, okay, because you talked to his grandson in the film. I spoke to his grandson in Jimmy Carter's private office in his house. Okay, I wondered. I assume you would have asked, but he's pretty advanced in age. Maybe he wasn't ready for his close-up. The Carters were both there. Um, and this I've seen this in the news, so I'm not telling anything that hasn't been reported, but they're both quite frail now. It, it has not been true for quite some time that they go out and still build the Habitat for Humanity homes. They're really physically not able to do that. Got it. Rosalind yeah. Carter has dementia. Hmm. And when we were on our way to the house, uh, Josh was driving. I was riding with him in his car. And he called him and said, hey, I'm coming by with uh, with my friend. We're going to film a thing. Yeah. And some of the people who work at the house said, you know, it's they've had a really hard day. We just got them put to bed. And it's like, you know, noon yep. or something. Yep. We just got them put to bed. And so you're probably not going to get to talk to them. So I said, okay, well, that's fine. That actually takes some pressure off me because I was, I was yeah. kind of worried about that. What if I'm <laughs> interviewing Josh and the president walks in? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No Quick, kidding. turn the camera around. Uh, Carrie just said on a recent episode that her favorite president is Jimmy Carter. There's a lot to be said for that choice. I went to his presidential library and it was fantastic. Mm. This is a really cool moment in the documentary because we've mentioned that Jimmy Carter had that UFO sighting in 1969. And in the documentary, you reveal the actual solution to that, what it is that he saw. And he now agrees that that is what he saw. Yes, you just connected the dots because I just realized we're talking about Jimmy Carter and we're talking about a movie about UFOs and we've not connected the two. In oh, any yeah. Way. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. why Jimmy Carter's story is in the film. Uh, yeah, it was Skeptic's Guide to the Universe that had kind of made this connection with the grandson. And you explain it so well in the film and give the visuals to really answer what it was that he saw and that his... One thing I learned from what you were saying is that he was actually very correct in his memory of the bearings, the location, yeah. the, the colors that he saw of these objects in the sky. That was a point that uh, Josh, his grandson, really asked me to please include this in the film. He said that the president was always really offended because he had trained as a scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was in the Navy, he'd trained as a, what do you call it, celestial navigation. Oh, okay. Uh, he was an, a lifelong a amateur astronomer. And people were always telling him that his UFO was Venus. And he was always offended that people thought he didn't know what Venus looked like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I know what Venus is. And, you know, I'll admit when I heard initially that tale, I thought, okay, well, something got misunderstood. Maybe it was some kind of aircraft, but it ended up being something far more interesting. And far more interesting, which I hadn't even heard about until I did the film. Yeah. And it's one of those examples of reality being cooler than fiction because, well, at least my fiction, it was better than what I could have come up with as an explanation. Um, I, yeah, yeah I, me too. I feel like I'm avoiding saying it. I don't know. You, you won't lose anything. No, we're avoiding saying it. We want everyone to listen to this okay. to go rent the film. Okay. Everybody needs to go see <laughs> the UFO movie. They don't want you to see. Okay, all right. I won't give the solution streaming here. now. Yeah, yeah. I just saw it on Vimeo today, but it's coming soon to other streaming services, right? It's popping up on, it'll be popping up on all the major streaming services over the next couple of months. Great. It's kind of, unfortunately, a little bit of a black box when it's going to appear on each one. Okay. This is not a major studio release where those dates would all be coordinated. It just kind of comes up as it comes up. So yes, it will eventually be all on all of them, but uh, it's going like gangbusters on Vimeo right now. Everyone's, people are renting it and enjoying it. So that's cool. That's great. And my wife was watching from behind me and she said, oh, that was really good. So, oh, good. Carablot your thumb. Of I want approval. no higher praise than that. <laughs>
so, okay, so you're reminding me now of something else that you kind of teased in the film, and I was wondering if I could get a little more info from you. You said that you've had three sightings yourself that made you kind of stop and go, whoa, what is that? Yes. Yes, I have. I think my most interesting one was, again, since I'm a desert guy, I was I was out in Death Valley camping with a, a couple of friends. And we're there probably nine o'clock at night or so, having our glass of wine in our camp chairs, uh, enjoying the warm evening. And overhead, filling half the sky, this enormous shape that I can only describe as like an arrow. It was an arrow made of lights at each little apex of the of the shape of an arrow. This sounds like classic UFO sighting. Okay. Very, very much so. And it went over our heads. All three of us are watching it. We're talking about it. What the hell is that? Oh my goodness. We could not figure it out. It went all the way horizon to horizon and disappeared behind a nearby mountain range. Now, now, Brian, please, please tell me that you pulled out a camera and got some kind of footage of this. So I, this is at night and <laughs> nothing. whatever would show cameras up. We, we had- Were insufficient. Uh, uh, and this was probably 20 years ago. Also. Oh, your so excuses, Brian Dunning. <laughs> <laughs> did not have a camera, but we were talking about what it might be. And honestly, none mm-hmm. of us had any clue. And we all had this, this kind of great rush that you get. Yeah. It's like, what did I just see? I don't know. And the second time it came over. I'm jealous of this experience <laughs> already. I know. I'm always jealous when someone has a great sighting. But it came over a second time. I, I'm not sure how much later, probably 20 minutes later, it comes over the, I think it just kind of came from behind us and all of a sudden it's overhead again, following the same path it took before. And this time, I'm not sure what was different, but we saw some more detail and it was quite immediately clear what it was. Where we were is near uh, China Lake Naval Air Station. This was a formation of planes doing aerial refueling at night. Oh, Okay. So the the tanker was the plane at the front of the arrow. Oh, and oh, it was then a there formation. was another plane behind it. Yeah, and then uh, other planes were just kind of stacked around, waiting their turns. I'm not sure how they organize it. But then once we realize that each one was an individual plane, then it's like, okay, look closer. You can see the the stars the, in between, the, the lights in the negative. You can space. see the stars in between. That was always a bit of a mystery. But yeah, I'm sure when you have relatively bright lights, and anything that's got lights in the sky is going to be brighter than the the stars. It probably occludes your vision of the lights in between. So yeah, you perceive it as a solid object, especially if it's holding that formation. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. And and, and we certainly did. This reminds me, okay, now I've gotten one UFO story out of you, but this reminds me of another really key point that you brought up that I know is a constant refrain of yours that I've learned from, which is that when we're listing the things that could possibly be in the sky that we're looking at, we shouldn't jump to some kind of experimental aircraft from the government. That is not a logical leap. Can you break that down a little bit? Because I think that's a really important point that, as you say, both skeptics and believers can miss. I, I hear it all the time. Uh, someone describes a UFO experience that that, that that is something extraordinary looking, okay? Mm-hmm. We're not just talking about a light moving across the sky that could be an airplane, could be a satellite. It's got to be making some pretty radical movements or or be doing something strange or unusual. It's got to look like that's not a plane. I can tell just from what it looks like. I can't recognize what it is, the way it's moving, whatever it is, something, it's doing something extraordinary. And typically people say, that's got to be some secret military craft. That's the only thing <laughs> in the world that could, that could move like that. Uh-huh. And <laughs> every single thing about that potential explanation is wrong. First, secret military aircraft 
are not there. They're at Area 51. They're at the National Classified Test Facility. They're not overpopulated areas where you mm. might be seeing them. Mm -hmm. So that disqualifies a secret military aircraft right there. Unless you happen to be at Groom Lake or something. Unless you happen to be there. And the second thing is that you've already described that it's it either looks or is moving in a way that's not consistent with an aircraft. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's not an aircraft, secret military or otherwise. That's such a good point because like you pointed out, if you just look back at the history of aircraft, there are always incremental improvements over previous designs, even something like a flying wing. It's a descent with modification and it's going to be maybe a little faster, but it's not going to suddenly change directions or do whatever bonkers thing that you're seeing in the sky. Right. No aircraft has the ability, has ever had the ability to make these 180 degree instantaneous changes in direction or looks like some outrageous colored light show. And, and we wouldn't need aircraft to do, to do those things. When we build aircraft to like the most secret aircraft in the world we'd build right now would be a high altitude reconnaissance plane hmm. that's hypersonic. If you see one of those flying overhead, it's not going to look any different than an airliner. You can't tell by looking at it whether mm. it's going 700 or 900 miles an hour or 1,500 miles an hour if it's an F-18 or 2,200 miles an hour if it's an SR-71. You can't tell those kind of changes by your eye. Yeah. It would look exactly like a regular airplane to you. So if it's not, then it's not. Right. We'll, we'll come back to Mick West later in this uh, discussion, but I loved how he had visualized in that uh, SITREC, the situation recreation software, yeah. that you project these lines forward toward what you're seeing. And it forms a cone that could be very small and closer, or it could be very large and far away. But you don't know. You really don't have anything to go on with your eyes to tell you the difference. Yeah, this directly goes toward the other popular trope that you hear from UFO people. They say, military pilots are trained observers. They can't be mistaken about when they identify mm. something in the, in the air. <laughs> oh, that annoys so me so much. I, I, I spoke to people who were not in the film uh, for various reasons, but in, including more flight instructors. I said, what is a trained observer? What is the observation training that military pilots supposedly get? And nobody said they'd ever heard of any such thing. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. They're not trained observers any more than you or I are. Yeah, where's and this anyway, observation 101 class that you take? When you're talking about you can't tell if something is near and small or far and large, the reason we can't tell that as human beings is geometry. It's not a lack of training. If you don't have a point to triangulate with, there is no way that any human or any optical instrument can tell how far away a dot is. Right. and It's geometry. It's not something that can be trained away. We've got depth perception, but the separation between our eyes is just a few inches. So yeah, it's useless. Yeah. You can't tell if something is 50 feet away or 50 miles away. And that's just, just a, a fact of the physical world. Yeah. So yeah. So we, we talked to a number of people to make that point that, uh, You've got to get away from the argument that pilots are trained observers. Mm -hmm. They can't be mistaken. They are mistaken every day yeah. about things, the same things you and I are mistaken about. Our air traffic controller talks about, hey, military pilots land at the wrong airports just yeah. as often as civilian air pilots do. That's a pretty darn big mistake. Yeah, that was new information. <laughs> that was a good moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to the two contact in the desert conferences that I've been to. Carrie and I have been to a few UFO conferences. Oh, yes. And the first time I was there, they had a star viewing party that was 
specifically meant for people to seek out UFOs. And they were passing around night vision goggles. And I was there with them as they were looking at things go overhead. And some of them, they'd say, okay, that's a satellite. But I noticed one particular trick seemed to work really well, where one satellite would sort of disappear into the shadow of the Earth, and then another satellite would come out of the same area at a 90-degree angle, because it was on a Uh, polar orbit or something, and it would emerge from the shadow into light. And they would say, it changed direction. Satellites can't do that. And goodness, even the night of, there was a lot of excitement, I remember. But the next day, I could hear the stories compounded as I would hear people tell them to each other. Like, oh, yeah, we definitely saw this, and they'd enhance the details. But at this most recent contact in the desert, they had a, a different guy leading, an actual astronomer who answers the uh, the MUFON reports. He actually receives those. And to his credit, he shoots down like 97% of them immediately because he'll do a little bit of that analysis and say, this was the planet that you saw. And so this was a far more sober event. And while we were there watching the stars this last time, a couple months ago, I could see people start to do that tittering when they would see something in the sky. And guess what? Of course, Starlink shows up and you've got all these (laughs) closely spaced satellites and they started to go, look at that. Oh my goodness. What is that? And the astronomer very patiently told them, oh no, that's just Starlink. And that's them disappearing into the shadow of the earth. So no big deal. Well, that that blows the second of my three personal UFO experiences, which was the first time I saw Starlink. Oh, yeah. Because I had never heard of it before. It's mind-boggling to just yeah. to look at. That it's it it really is. It is a major mind warp if you see that and you don't know what it is because that genuinely is absolutely unprecedented. There is nothing else in the sky yeah. that anyone will ever see that looks anything like that. So what we're talking about is a bunch of freshly launched uh, Elon Musk owned internet satellites that are very close to each other when they first launch and then over time they spread apart and you see just this sequence of even dots parading across the sky and it it is amazing looking. The funny thing is I wanted video uh, for the film. I wanted video yeah, of the Starlink. Yeah, you had train. a good clip in there. I, I did. And what I did is I got a couple of these astronomy apps on the phone that'll tell you, hey, when is the next Starlink coming overhead? And every time it predicted one, I went out, I brought like three different movie cameras and had them all <laughs> set up and all these different lenses and everything all ready to go. And one never came over. I was so bummed. I don't know oh. what was going on. Huh. I, to this day, I don't know what was what was the disconnect between the app and, and when I was going out and setting up. Weird. And then one night, my wife comes running in. She says, hey, you, you left just before I filmed them for you. They just came <gasps> over. And oh she hands God. me her iPhone. <laughs> and that's the clip that's in the film. My wife shot that on her iPhone. Lisa saved the day. Right after I'd carried all my cameras inside. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, and that's the one you use in the film. Yep. Uh, fantastic. Oh, that's a good story. So that's why she's in the credits as a... Uh, additional footage or something. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I think that siding with the other enthusiasts at the conference was my first time seeing Starlink. And at least I knew in advance what it was. And like, whoa, cool. Now I get to see it. Now for radio astronomy on the Earth, less cool that you have so many satellites in the sky now. Uh, But that's that's a separate issue. Yeah. Okay, well, now now you got to complete the trilogy. What was your third sighting? Well, I've actually got four now that you mentioned it. Hey. The third one was a great mystery. A friend of mine, a guy's been been friends with me for my whole life. He had become quite a believer in sort of alien visitation. And the reason was because there was a repeatable sighting that he would often see outside of his apartment. 
And he was very serious about it. And so he showed it to me and I go to his apartment and he said, just keep looking right up there. And one of them's going to go shooting right past. Oh. And sure enough, this light goes shooting right past. Oh, this is what we ask for. Like, show yeah. me the repeatable thing. Repeatable. And it, it, it was like a gray patch. I mean, very small. Like if you were to hold your hand out at arm's length, it'd be half the size of your little pinky fingernail. Okay. But it was like a gray kind of squarish patch was was the impression that it made on my mind. Hmm. Moving across the sky. So it didn't look like a star. It was moving too fast to have been a distant helicopter or airplane or anything. And I had been speaking to some ghost hunter friends not too long before, and they'd given me a couple of ideas uh, by describing things that had fooled people into thinking they were seeing ghosts. Hmm. And I kind of had a suspicion of what I thought this thing might be. And well, I'll just cut to the chase. Hmm. What it was happening was we were standing at, at his apartment door, looking out over the parking lot kind of below us. He was on the second floor. And to our right was the entrance to the parking lot where you'd turn in off the street. And at that entrance was one of those Con, those convex mirrors, you know, so you can, sitting in your car, you can see traffic oh. coming down the road toward you. Oh, okay. And it's reflecting light from the nearby road. Okay, keep going, keep going. So if you were at the intersection, if you made a right turn out of this lot, there's an intersection there. And the cars that were making a left turn at that intersection to come down toward this mirror to turn into the driveway... <sighs> As they turned, the whole th situation was just set up geometrically for this. As they turned, their headlights would sweep across this convex mirror and the mirror <laughs> would project. It was strange. It would project oh. what I think was like a vertical slit of light, which would intersect a power line. Wow. Hanging across at the other side of the parking lot. Oh my goodness. So that's why it was repeatable and why if you stood there long enough, you'd see it several times. And well, we would correlate it with, with individual yeah. cars making that turn at the intersection. Amazing. It, and sure enough, I slept there at his apartment. You have the hypothesis, then you can reproduce it. Yeah, we got up in the morning and we looked and there's the power line right there. Amazing. Exactly the same place as where the, the thing was. I love the thrill, that little shot of adrenaline and whatever other neurochemicals are going on when you have that kind of mystery. And then I, I love the even greater thrill when you figure out what's causing it. But boy, the two as a combo is just uh, next level. That's fantastic. And, and that in a nutshell is why I love doing what I do, which is not just taking the popular story, which is wow in itself, but then going the next step further and actually finding what's really going on yeah. because that's the, even the bigger wow. And I'm always amazed that so many people will watch these paranormal shows on television and be happy with, oh, it's a ghost. It's yeah. the ghost of the lighthouse or whatever it is. Cheap and, thrills. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Isn't it even more amazing to go another step and find out what's actually causing that apparition, whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. If you catch the local who's hiding behind the vestibule and making the sounds or whatever, that's more interesting to me. <laughs> that's exciting. Yep. It's a good story. Uh, you used an example in the film that I had learned about from your podcast, which was that that lighthouse that was causing a sighting. You had people wandering around in the woods and they would say, oh, it was over there somewhere and it showed up and there it is again. And you had figured out not only which lighthouse it was, but you had overlaid the sound of the periodicity of the lighthouse, like every five seconds when it would aim toward the people looking. And uh, it lined up perfectly with the audio that was recorded of them stumbling through the woods and going, oh, I just saw it. 
Yeah. Now, other people long before me had figured out that it was the lighthouse. Okay. okay. In fact, the very night that it happened, the police, when they called the police, the police wrote down in their logbook, all these people were seeing was the flashing light at the, of, the, of the lighthouse. So that was known. I didn't solve that. But what I, I did look up the period of the lighthouse, mm-hmm. um, how often it flashed. And align those beeps up with the people saying "Wow!" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the audio, that, that, which was it's a great illustration. It really was. But at the same time, you, you make another point with that story, which is how stories grow and morph over time. That years later, someone would say, "Oh, yeah, I had," and maybe, maybe this is a different story I'm conflating. But that the people will then add details. Oh, yeah, I wrote this down contemporaneously, and there was this other element that I just now remembered thirty years hence. Yeah. And most of the time, that's completely honest. In the case of the Lighthouse story, there's one of the people who has very obviously been dishonest and intentionally magnifying his story and making a career out of it. But that's the exception of the rule. Most people, most of these eyewitnesses are very honest in their belief of what they saw. They're not intentionally exaggerating anything. But when a group of people all share the same story and they know each other very well over 30 years, 40 Mm -hmm. years for some of these, the stories organically grow over time. And when a new person comes in and says, well, this and this, and then everyone kind of augments their memories and adds that to the story. So that's why we see, you know, there's a number of uh, famous UFO cases that are always told and retold on all these silly UFO TV Mm -hmm. shows. And it'll be adults now who are telling about something they saw as children. And hey, there was 60 of us in the schoolyard. We all saw the same thing. Our stories were all the same. And we're here we are very responsible, honest adults. And Mm -hmm. we're not lying or making anything up. Well, that's true. They're not lying or making anything up. And I'm sure they are honest and responsible adults. Yeah. They're just... They're telling stories in the most contaminated possible situation. (laughs) Yeah, and what you said in the documentary was something that we were talking about on the show recently. Like, when someone has this story, yes, capture it, but capture it right away and get them separated from everybody else who was there Mm -hmm. to cut that contamination short as quickly as you can. Which was unfortunately never done in any of these stories. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Well, when you start the film, and I'm sure you put a lot of thought into this, because again, you were trying to aim this at people who were on the fence, or even people who maybe already were believers. The, The way you led into the film was by talking about just what we know from science about the laws of physics, the chances of life on other planets. Can can you talk a little bit about that storytelling decision? I am actually fairly bullish on the possibility, I would say the probability of intelligent life in the universe. Mm. And almost everyone that I speak to in the astronomy community feels the same way. That's fairly universal among people who are um, astrophysicists, astronomers, astrobiologists. It's nearly universal that we believe that there's a lot of life in the universe and probably intelligent life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's great news. And when you're talking about from a storytelling perspective, how do you open a story by capturing the audience is you want to talk about stuff that you're in agreement with. Mm -hmm. Hey, here, Mm -hmm. we're, we're all on the same page with this. We all want to meet our alien neighbors. And Luckily, science does support that they're almost certainly out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it's awesome. And here's here's some details. We don't go into hard science. It's not, you know, an equations movie or anything. But yeah. here is the basics of some of the exobiology that we, that we know 
that we can tell that there's probably going to be life out there that we're going to be able to detect directly yeah. within within our lifetimes, probably. Well, I thought you tackled that well because you introduced the idea Thank of you. like carbon chemistry and signatures that you could see just from the light that comes from atmospheres and other planets, and then talked about the number of exoplanets that have already been discovered. And I hadn't seen that video before that you included from NASA from the... Uh, Kepler telescope of all of the um, the exoplanets just kind of popping onto the map of the the Milky Way as they yeah. were discovered. That was that was cool. That was a jaw dropping moment just seeing that. Is it? Yeah, I love that. I love that video that they made. And they put it to music, so every every planet uh, <laughs> plays a note. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, and and good. They placed it in the public domain too, which is of course because they're NASA. They have to, but it's awesome anyway. Your tax dollars at work, literally. <laughs> and that's a great way to put them to work. So we're able to start the film on a very hopeful note. Um, I did. I really did want to capture people who have unscientific opinions about alien visitation, which is that they turn on ancient aliens or whatever on TV, and instantly they say, there we go, proof, hard evidence that aliens actively visit the Earth. Mm -hmm. That's not science. That's not a scientific-based opinion. But here is some real science that does support at least part of what you're hoping for. Yeah, yeah. That's tremendous. You established we're on the same team. We all want this. But we have to stick to the facts and the physics. And I liked your explanation as well of, you know, what I would think of as the Fermi paradox, the the question of, well, why aren't they here? Because, you know, yeah, we're... Where is everyone? They should have arrived by now because we're kind of a second generation star system. We're made from the remains of previous ones. Somewhere around us, there should have been other alien civilizations and they should have sent out emissaries. And you had this way of explaining it that you call the Christmas tree problem, right? Yes. Yeah. Can, can you explain that? I, I like that as a tool. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's two main problems. And most people are aware of problem number one, which is the distance. The distance you'd have to travel to visit another civilization. And the astrophysics involved in the fact that you can't travel faster than light. And yes, you can argue that aliens are smarter than us, right? So they don't have physical laws. Well, it doesn't work that way. Mm. That's wishful thinking. That's not science. But anyway, the second problem First problem is distance. The second problem is time. Mm -hmm. Maybe aliens did visit us and it was a billion years ago. Yep. And their civilization has been gone for 900 million years. You have to have civilizations existing at the same time. And over the 14 billion year history of the universe, that's a lot of civilizations coming and going. A hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times, yeah. you can have civilizations live and die so the analogy that I make in the film is, is of a Christmas tree filled with strings of blinking lights. And every time a light blinks on, that represents the lifespan of a technological civilization. You know, we've got civilizations, but then we've got technological civilizations. Okay, the dolphin people might have a civilization, mm -hmm. but they're not, they can't build fire. They don't have tools. They can't make complex electronics. Yeah, you might detect them in the atmosphere, uh, maybe, but yeah, you, they're not going to send radio signals. Right. We might detect their biosignature. We would not detect any technosignatures from them. So we're talking about technological civilizations that have the ability to communicate and with, which might reasonably like to meet one another. So in the 14 billion year history of the universe, that's a lot of civilizations that could have come and gone. A hundred generations, a thousand generations, 10,000 generations, a civilization grows, it flourishes, and then it dies. Whether it's a natural disaster, a war, a pandemic, their planet explodes, their sun goes nova, gamma ray burst. There's a million ways a civilization yeah. can yeah, die. Yeah. 
And this has happened over and over and over and over again throughout the universe in all probability. That's not a proven fact because we don't have any data for it yet, mm -hmm. but we probably will in the future. And for any one of these civilizations to be able to solve the distance problem, yeah. they have to be very, very close to each other. Mm -hmm. That's not impossible, but it's very unlikely when we remind ourselves that they not only have to be very close, they have to be at the exact same moment. So that's where the Christmas tree analogy comes yeah. into play. Two lights have to turn on and they have to be right next to each other and they have to be on at the same time. And when you look at the complexity of a whole Christmas tree system, and of course we're imagining theoretical Christmas tree lights that actually yeah. do blink randomly. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> half on, half off, half on, half off. Um, it's, it's just a really elegant way of visualizing the problem, that it's a lot more complicated than just figuring out how to travel faster than light. Yeah. It's a, it's a problem that we don't have a solution to, and it's a problem that everyone who's enthusiastic about one day meeting our neighbors out there is bummed about. I'm bummed about it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a little depressing to me every time I think about it, because even if we do get that signal, let's say uh, a planet 50 light years away, then, oh, cool. Okay, they sent us something. You send a response and you wait at minimum 100 years to get a response. Yeah, and depressing. you're not around anymore. Oh, yeah, I got to admit this, this whole situation is one where like I intellectually agree with everything you've said about the probability of life on other planets. And if people ask me, do you think there's alien life, intelligent alien life? I say, yeah, it seems like statistically, absolutely. But it's not one that I feel like I only intellectually know and just somehow I don't feel that fact. But yeah, that Christmas tree problem is a is a problem. The thing that I personally found most fascinating and I, I mentioned it in the film directly, I think, is the hypothetical possibility of an alien astrobiologist sitting there on his alien world with his mm -hmm. telescope, mm -hmm. looking at Earth and noticing, oh my God, look at that spectrum. Yeah. It has every conceivable biosignature and it's got technosignatures. We've had biosignatures for at least three and a half billion years. Yeah. And we've had technosignatures for a hundred years. So they most likely they... If there's ever been any alien astrobiologists out there on their planets that were in range of Earth, in any kind of a meaningful range, and had achieved at least our level of ability to yeah. look at other spectra, it's very possible that Earth has been noticed by aliens. And that is that is a, that possibility yeah. is scientifically plausible. It is a scientific fact that that is a possibility, that we have been noticed by an alien astrobiologist. We're broadcasting at some point. that. Yeah. That to me is just, it just blows my mind yeah. and is the most exciting thing I can imagine. I like that. Uh, and then I know people then form a split about how they feel about that. I remember uh, Stephen Hawking famously said, well, that's a bad thing that we're broadcasting constantly our presence. Uh, I don't agree with that. Stephen Hawking, what do you know? Yeah, I, I, Brian's shaking his I, head. I, very few people that I know agree with that perspective. Well, you know, and once you get to the point where you're spacefaring, hopefully you're a little more along the Star Trek line of things than the um, the Mad Max side of things in terms of your culture. We have exactly one data point to know what a civilization in space would do if they learned about another civilization. And that data point is ourselves. What have we tried to do? I mean, we've, we've tried to, we've sent out the golden record. And yeah, the, that's the, right. The, the plaque with the picture of the, the two people on it. And here's, where, here's instructions for how to find Earth uh, relative to some pulsars that you almost certainly know about. Yeah. Uh, here's what hydrogen looks like so you can tell that we understand science. And here's sounds of Earth. 
I mean, we, it was the friendliest possible thing that we could have done. That's a good point, because my first thought was our, our example was like, you know, colonization of the New World by Europe. But that's oh. far before we were a <laughs> spacefaring civilization. That yeah. takes a lot more time, coordination, planning. You have to be kind of at a, a higher level of interaction where you've hopefully gotten through some of those growing pains. I think so. I still have enough faith in humanity to believe that we're there. I know a lot of people take a lot more cynical view of humanity th than I do, but you know, I'm I'm more interested in the possibilities for humanity than I am in our petty quarrels yeah. here on Earth. <laughs> well, and we still have the problem that they're not here yet. So make of that what you will. Uh, you use another point that well, everybody does, but it's one I point out all the time: uh, the proverbial White House lawn. If they yeah. were here and they wanted us to know about them. They wouldn't abscond with us one by one and tell us this message of, of human collaboration and cooperation and kindness and love. They could land on the White House lawn and we would not be able to stop them. So why hasn't that happened? From the, from the one data point we have is that we would probably, we would probably be friendly and sociable if we met others. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that any other civilizations would be friendly and sociable, but at least some of them would. Some of them might be Stephen Hawking's destructive aliens. Mm -hmm. Some of them might want to hide and just hide behind a cloud and study us from afar without making themselves known. I think we would announce ourselves in every possible way and try to make contact. And if, the, if that's true, if it's true that, that other civilizations out there, hypothetical ones, mm -hmm. uh, might be like us and would want to be sociable, then that means that some of them are sociable and some of them would come out on the White House lawn. Now, if anyone has solved both the distance problem and the Christmas tree problem, then you would think that one of those three things would happen. Someone would have destroyed yeah. the earth in a science fiction movie kind of way. Independence Day, yeah. Well, that hasn't happened. Right. Someone would have been out, jumped out on the White House lawn. Well, that hasn't happened. <laughs> so if, if two of these three, if neither of those have happened, that chances are no one has visited the earth. I love and that the White House lawn just gets used because I can't think of a better piece of real estate, maybe in the middle of a Taylor Swift concert or something. I'm trying to think of <laughs> what might have more eyeballs, but White House lawn it is. Yeah, that jump plop down on stage right next to Taylor. Yeah. People I mean, would just think it's part of the show. Again, who could stop them? And, and people shift arguments like, the, oh, society wouldn't be ready for it. No, we're ready for it. You could tell me. Well, I heard Seth Shostak, the director of the SETI Institute, the other day, he made a great point that for some reason hadn't occurred to me. People are always bringing up that thing that, oh, uh, humanity is not ready for, <laughs> the government would have to keep it suppressed because people aren't ready for that knowledge. Okay. As of today, 40% of Americans believe that aliens actively visit the earth. Yeah. According to a recent Gallup poll. Yeah. Okay. So 40% of the people are already there and they seem to be handling the news pretty well. Yeah, that's so. right. They've already <laughs> accepted it. That's a yes. really good point. And we're not seeing anyone rioting in the streets and pitchforking babies. Leave it to Seth Shostak. Well, speaking of experts, you brought on the one person that I always urge people to listen to in these conversations, and that's Mick West. We've, oh, yes. we've had him on the show before. And during that whole recent UAP congressional hearing, I just kept saying, like, why isn't Mick West on this panel? Come on. We're still talking about Gimbal. We're still talking about Tic Tac. We're still talking about GoFast. And I've watched many of his YouTube videos, and I will say I think the best presentation I've seen of Mick West's breakdown on those particular sightings, uh, also the, uh, the night vision one with the green triangles, your presentation in the film, I think, is the best that I've seen of that finding. Thank you. I mean, Mick has made some tremendous videos, but uh, I needed to get this down to about 12 minutes. And 
how do I get all these points explained perfectly in about 12 minutes? Well, the way you do that is by interviewing him for three or four hours uh, and then <laughs> doing a lot of chopping and, and, and slicing and dicing and condensing and putting it all together in a way that makes a very well-structured presentation. So I had an opportunity okay. to do that, that that Mick doesn't necessarily have when he makes his videos on, on, on YouTube. Yeah, which which are excellent. I just thought the, the yeah. way you presented it in the film was really well curated. And I Thank was, you very much. I was looking at your setup with the cameras and, and thinking like, okay, so he had to shoot that and that. And when, oh, he had to get direct screen capture for that. That's what I would want. <laughs> yeah. And luckily he was all set up to do that. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and this was news to me. I, you know, I should have intuited this, but he was even saying that it's not all him, that he has this community and that he's the one kind of wrangling the community, kind of like Susan Gerbic does with all of her Wikipedia editors. And he did a really good job of kind of sharing credit where credit was due in, yes. uh, in his own findings. That presentation that he made talking about the other people on his team was an important part of another little segment of the film when I was talking about what are the best experts that you should have on mm -hmm. these UFO task forces yeah. that, that the Navy and, and the government are always putting together. Yeah, that, uh, Because they're not well done right now, and they could be. You had them talking about how they were going to bring on metallurgists and various other you know, yeah. people who had interesting areas of expertise. Areas of expertise that have no relevance to any of the things that any solved UFO sightings have ever been found to be. Right. And you had already presented that list. Most sightings have ended up being either celestial objects or airborne clutter or things on the ground. Things on the ground and optical illusions. Right. You said, well, you find experts on those particular things. Like you bring in an astronomer, you bring in a skeptic. I like how you said that, that the congressperson had even mentioned that they wanted to bring in all voices. Well, that's yeah. somebody who's worked on figuring these things out. Yeah, I think I said, uh, you may not like UFO skeptics, you may feel that they're Debbie Downers and always have the negative perspective and are cynical about everything. However, they're the only people with actual job experience doing this job. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have been doing it for 30 years and they've written books on the subject. And they, believe it or not, they do know the things that fool pilots and that fool people on the ground. And if you truly claim that you want to have an all hands on deck approach, which mm -hmm. I, I believe is the term that he used, then their perspective is one that you must include. You may not agree with the Mick West that you bring in, but you want to hear his level of explanation first and at least do what you can to rule that out. Because when you're sitting down with him, having him walk through his simulation software and kind of break down the, the footage of these four real tent pole sightings, he's looking at the data on the camera, he's examining what type of technology it was, where the lens had to swap into a new mode or change zooming because yeah. of the hardware constraints. Like all of that comes into play. And I always think when we hear that the government's released this and allowed it for the public, I think, why didn't they perform this level of analysis themselves? Well, I, I, I mean, I've got the answer for that. Um, this wasn't in the film. Well, well, one thing that was in the film was Mick's suggestion for who should be on these committees. It wasn't just, oh, me, put me on the committee. It was crowdsource it. Yes. Put it yeah. out there. Yeah. Put it public and let all the world's experts in all these things, and a lot of whom were amateurs, mm -hmm. let them have a crack at it. Mick's team did this with a very famous UFO out of Chile. Okay. And the Chilean government had a UFO task force. It was actually kind of similar to the way that these congressional hearings are 
that we've been having have been organized and put together by lifelong UFO authors hmm. who have just become influential for t to some of these Congress people. And that's how this Chilean government UFO committee was put together too. It was a bunch of old retired guys from like the UFO Society of Chile. <laughs> and they had official, they were made an official government department. They had this one very famous UFO case. I talk about it on the Skeptoid podcast. Mm -hmm. It's not in the movie, skeptoid.com. <laughs> Subscribe today. And they spent two years and they could not come up with anything. They said, this craft that we're seeing in the, in the film cannot be of earthly origin. We have no way of determining what it was. And when they finally released the video, along with that explanation, Instantly. Mick's team, <laughs> Mick's, Mick West's team at, yeah. that made a bunk website, solved it in three days. Three days <laughs> with complete data. They had the flight tracks of all the aircraft involved. They had everything. Three mm. days compared to two years. And that's exactly how it would go with these Navy and, and these um, congressional committees that they're putting together today. They simply don't have anything. And they do it free of charge. They do it free of charge. Yeah. And, and, and they've got, again, these are the people who have real world experience actually solving these things. And, you know, what could be more in the spirit of disclosure and transparency? Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. The, who, would, who would object? Right, right. Exactly. On principle, there's nothing to disagree with there. And another visual that I love in the film is when Mick is showing that night vision footage. And I had seen before that he had figured out about the aperture and the planets nearby. But then you see the camera moving in real time along a star map. And breaks it down exactly which stars are falling in the path of the camera. And you see that as the camera moves around. It's brilliant. Really good visual. Yeah. Again, I, I put a lot of that, the effectiveness of that sequence down to the ability to spend. I probably spent six weeks editing just that 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it, was, it was a lot of work to, to really put together the best, most succinct and clearest presentation possible. I mean, I, I had the best source material you could ask which is mixed explanations, mixed videos, his screen capture and everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and we, we had the benefit of cutting away to other people for yep. more explanations. We cut away to the air traffic controller to explain things, uh, the flight instructor to explain things. Um, I think he even cut away to Hal Bidlack once or twice in that as well. You, uh, you took time to write a short letter. I did. <laughs> Very well said, yes, I did. Another really useful point from that conversation was about the low information zone. I feel I'll be using that now because that's something I'm often trying to describe that Bigfoot and UFOs and a lot of these phenomena, orbs and ghost photos, they kind of reside in this low information zone. And sometimes you have to create that with a certain amount of graininess or lack of fidelity, even in the uh, recording media that gives you this kind of noise level that you can read into, that you can perform a little bit of that pareidolia or apophenia. Yeah. Just as I'm hoping that the, the Christmas tree problem will be my personal contribution <laughs> to the field, uh, Mick's personal contribution that I think is going to be his lasting one is, is the concept of the low information zone, the LIZ, the Liz. And it's, yeah, just you, you just described it very aptly. It's the low information zone is anything that's outside the range of our sensor to capture with any clarity. And usually that sensor means a camera. If something's too far away to get a good picture, mm -hmm. it becomes a, a blob squatch, a Bigfoot photo. <laughs> 
That's because Bigfoot lives in the low information zone. I love We've it. We've never seen a Bigfoot that's in the high information zone. He seems to only live in the low information zone along with UFOs. Liz. That's, that's <laughs> the idea. <laughs> that's great. Hello, Ross. Hello, Brian. This is Other Ross breaking in to share some high information zone content. That's right. You're probably wondering where you can go to find wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Well, let me tell you about Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, which offers chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. And I've done this. You know what? I really love these as take-to-work meals. These are great. They've never been frozen, but they show up at your door. Right before I'd leave for work, I'd just grab one out of the fridge, put it in my backpack, ride my bike to work, take it out of the backpack, store it in the fridge there, and as soon as it's lunchtime, boom, I heat it up, good to go. They're just the right amount of food, and uh, there's a variety of packages that you choose from. So let's see, they've got Protein Plus, they've got Calorie Smart, they've got Keto, they've got Chef's Choice, they've got Vegan and Veggie, which you might imagine, that's what Carrie and I tried out. And so far, all of the ones I've tried have been really fantastic. Uh, I got really excited about the vegetarian tamale bowl, as you might imagine. I know Carrie and I had one of them that were the same, because after she tried the spicy sweet potatoes and peanut sauce, she texted me with a picture of hers and said that she is reporting that this is quite good. But yeah, these are upscale meals with premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, asparagus, and the meat options look great too. So, so maybe you're running around and you're a little busy during the day. This is a good way to have your lunch ready. I think this would make great dinners as well. And uh, you can heat them up in the microwave or the conventional oven. It's ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. It's fast, it's tasty. And as my coworker Chris says, huh, that smells good. So head to factormeals.com slash ono50 and use code ono50 to get 50% off. That's code ONO5050 at factormeals.com slash ONO50 to get 50% off. And hey, while you're busy looking at the skies, maybe it's time to get some new glasses. Maybe you want prescription glasses. Maybe you want to protect your eyes with some sunglasses. Well, guess what? Pair Eyewear's got you covered. There's a few cool things about Pair Eyewear. Uh, first of all, these are just stylish glasses in and of themselves. So you tell them what your prescription is or you order the, the regular glasses. But on top of the base frame, you can add tops to your glasses. So, for example, I ordered the Kirby in a tortoise frame design and got it as sunglasses. So I've got these great sunglasses that I was just wearing the other day at Disneyland. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting story. We took Drew to Disneyland, if you listen to our Kidney Stone episode, we made sure that he got on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. He did it three times. He also did Matterhorn, and we're going to hopefully find out soon how that worked out. So more to come. But the, the important part of this story is that I also got blue reflective sun tops to go on top of the Kirby frame. So, okay, so here's the cool thing. On Factor Eyewear, there are built-in magnets on the sides it uh, doesn't make the glasses any bulkier or anything because picture a pair of glasses. There's already like an area there where magnets fit. They just had the bright idea of putting those uh, right under the surface so that you can add these snap-on tops that maybe you ordered some clear glasses and it can add sun protection on top of those. 
or uh, maybe you want to get some cool colors. Well, you can do that. And that's what I did. And I was thinking like, huh, I wonder if you'll be able to tell kind of that they're, you know, not like perfectly aligned or anything. No, they are perfectly aligned. So uh, it looks like the original design when you snap on the additional designs on top of them. So yeah, really cool design. And you know, what I ended up doing was I got the sunglasses, but then I got additional sun tops to go on top of them. So it doubled my sun protection actually in full light of day. That was super handy. And uh, I ended up with these kind of nice rose colored glasses as a result. So there are hundreds of ways to customize this because you get the base frame and then you can add tons of designs and they're adding new ones all the time of snaps that go on top of them. So maybe you get like three different colors, different designs, and then you can quickly swap them out. Maybe today you feel like having blue frames. Maybe tomorrow you feel like having orange frames. You do you. And like I said, budget-friendly base frames start at just $60, including prescription. And the hundreds of top frames you can choose from start at $25. So start building a collection of styles. You can swap every day uh, with your same pair of glasses. And they've also just introduced five new wide and extra wide styles, if that is the style you're going for. So here's what you do. Elevate your summer looks and get 15% off your first pair when you go to PairEyewear.com slash OnRack. That's Pair, P-A-I-R, Eyewear.com slash OnRack, O-N-R-A-C. And while you're at it, check out this awesome show from Maximum Fun. I'm Emily Heller. And I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over 10 years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider. And it's working. <laughs> Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about... Gardening. Horses. Various problems with our butts. And all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. <laughs> Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. Okay, so there was another really important piece in your documentary that's something I've kind of encountered before, but never quite understood well enough to explain it to others. And that's the whole waterhole frequency. Can you can you describe that for our listeners? Because I'll do a clumsy job of it. <laughs> Yeah, so there is there's a particular frequency on the electromagnetic spectrum that would be particularly effective for different planets who if they had the ability and the knowledge that they would probably both choose to communicate. And that's if you're if you're a scientifically literate mm -hmm. civilization, which obviously is what we're limited to by this discussion by definition. Mm -hmm. It's called the waterhole frequency and astronomers call it that because it's kind of like the office you know, water cooler. It's yeah. where civilizations would come to congregate on the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's got a few things going for it. Number one, it's easy to find because it's right next to the frequency at which interstellar hydrogen precesses. Now you don't need to worry about what that means. Okay. It's just a frequency that you will hear ambiently from everywhere in the universe just because there's interstellar hydrogen, a lot of it out so there. So it's kind of noisy because there's just a lot of that activity occurring. It's, it's not particularly noisy. It's not like, it's not so noisy that it drowns stuff out. Okay. It's just a beacon for here's a frequency right here that you would know hmm. if you know anything about science and you understand radio astronomy. Okay. Here's a frequency. 
Well, the water hole frequency is right next to that. So it's a good place to go because there's a big flag pointed right next to it. The other thing that's great about it is it penetrates atmospheres. So yeah. it's going to be received if you're on the ground. If you're listening with your radio telescope that's on the ground, waterhole frequency signals are among the ones that are going to make it through your atmosphere. It's, yeah. How sad would it be if a signal just bounced off the atmosphere back into space? So this is the one that'll get through. Yeah. So it's got a lot of things going for it. And famously, if anyone who knows anything about radio astronomy, and I know that's that's a terrible way to start a sentence. Hey, but a lot of our <laughs> listeners, uh, we, we have similar uh, kinds of listeners. Uh, well, great. And, and that's wonderful to be here with that kind of audience. You probably know the wow signal, the famous wow signal that we received in 1977 on the Big Ear Radio Telescope at the University of Ohio. And this was just a very brief blip in signal strength. We were just listening for for signal strength. We weren't like looking for intelligent signals in it. It was just recording signal strength. And just for just a brief little moment, <laughs> there was this big peak that went up and it went down as the telescope, which was flat on the ground, and it's, it's you know, pointed at a particular yeah. direction. It sweeps the sky as the earth rotates. And as it swept past this particular point in space, it recorded this very, very, very clear signal. And guess what frequency it was on? That, that's crazy. I did not know until watching your film that, that it was in that hydrogen band, the waterhole frequency. It was on the 1.42 gigahertz, I believe, uh, the waterhole frequency. Amazing. And famously, the scientist who was looking at the printout of this circled it and wrote, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's it's, something. It's a great, if you just if you just do a Google image search for the word wow, you will find that. Amazing. It's wonderful to see. <laughs> we don't know what it was. We have ruled out everything that it, that might possibly have tricked us. It wasn't an old Lucy show bouncing off of the moon or anything. It was from a point in space. We don't know how far away. Okay. In the direction of Sagittarius. Sagittarius. Yeah. yeah. It could have been 100 miles away. It could have been 100 billion miles and away. And like since then, SETI's paid close attention to that area of the sky, right? They've tried yes, this. Yes, and, and we've never heard anything since. From <sighs> Maybe we got just a glimpse of a Christmas tree light. It is... It's, it's a possibility. I mean, we can't say it's, oh yeah, probably that's what it was. We can't say that at all. Right, right. Of course. But we can say that it is consistent with everything we would hope to find. But you're saying a there's a chance. There's a chance that it was a ghost. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, <laughs> yes, there is a chance that it was what we would love for it to be. Amazing. Have you already been able to, I don't know, use like a test audience of people who are more inclined to UFO belief? Have you gotten any feedback? I, I know the film is early in its uh, global penetration, but ha have you gotten any feedback and how are you hoping maybe that you will get it out to the intended audience? Yeah, so it's this is a, a grassroots distribution. This is not something that's a major studio film. It's not Iron Man 5. I don't have a huge dis distributor behind it or anything. I'm just independently putting it out on all the streaming services, uh, which you can do at a, at, a, at a certain level. And the caveat is, you know, basically that you don't know when they're each coming out on each streaming service. That's all done by algorithms and everything. But it's not Christmas tree lights because once it turns on, it stays on. <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> once it it stays on until until I turn it off. Okay. Which I'm not going to do because this is not something that's going to make a tremendous amount of money by any stretch. It's just something that I want people to see. And I, I hope people share it. And I hope people come away with something valuable from it. And that was my whole intention that whoever you are, 
whatever your thoughts about UFOs, whether you insist that they're all swamp gas and that nothing has ever been in any way mysterious, or whether you think that all the stories are true and every story represents an actual alien visitation to Earth, or if you're somewhere in between, my hope and my belief and my intent was that everyone would come away with their thoughts a little bit better informed by some of the relevant sciences, and they would really have more passion for what it is that they believe and take it more seriously. When I look at the subject, I'm thinking of the possibility of our neighbors in space. I'm not thinking of who are the crackpots hmm. going on History Channel with their UFO movies telling ridiculous stories. I, 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 it, this movie is not about who are the UFO personalities today. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's something I'm very disinterested in. I am fascinated by the real sciences involved and how those sciences do support what I think all of us have in common, which is a desire to at least know more, if we're not actually going to meet them in our lifetimes, to at least know more about whether there's friends out there and might we ever meet them and what are those chances actually. Because mm -hmm. I, I do believe that at some point in the future, and it might be a long time, we will have some kind of a dialogue. And it might well be every 150 years we get a signal and they send a signal back and we send a signal. Because you know that if we got a signal from someone that was intelligent, we would immediately train every transmitter on the planet at that point in space mm -hmm. and commence nonstop broadcasting of everything we could think of to send. Yeah. I've, I've heard the idea of like just sending them Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> How great would that be? <laughs> would you send the Chinese version or the English version? <laughs> yeah. Whichever one is the most complete. I believe there's a non-zero chance that some civilization would likely do the same thing with us. And I believe that it's, it's a better than 50% chance I would slide my chips on the table to yes, at some point humanity will, will likely have that experience. And I'm, I'm extremely excited about that. Um, I'm a lot more excited about that than I am what I see when I turn on the History Channel. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the film you've made has, I think, all of the important building blocks for that discussion. So I, I feel like it should be kind of a prerequisite for entering into this conversation seriously because it gives you a lot Thank of you. really good handholds, like concepts philosophically, just to have present in your mind. And yeah, I think I think it would raise the level of the conversation. So if you have either the UFO believer or the hardened skeptic in your life, sit down and watch the UFO movie they don't want you to see. You gotta you gotta emphasize it, right? It's they. the UFO movie <laughs> they, they don't want you to see. The ominous they, yeah. <laughs> Which is not us, because clearly we want you to see it. And if you want to see it, search all the streaming services. It's it's appearing on them irregularly, but you can always go to the movie's website, which is theufo.movie, and the current streaming options will be right there on the homepage, whatever they are, and you can click right through to them. Theufo.movie. Fantastic. And generally, where do people find you online, Brian? Find me online every week on the Skeptoid podcast. And that's at Skeptoid.com. You can search for Skeptoid or me, Brian Dunning, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> and we'll pop right up and you can subscribe and you get uh, 10 or 15 minutes of Skeptoidy goodness uh, in your earbuds. Earpods? Earbuds? I don't even know what they're called. Yeah. Every week. <laughs> Every urban legend you've ever wanted to know the solution to, we've got it on Skeptoid. And here's a related question that we get all the time. Hey, Brian, have you run out of topics yet? <laughs> I remember two years into the podcast, people were saying, ah, Skeptoid's done. He's run out of <laughs> run out of topics. Here we are 900 years later, not 900 years, 900 <laughs> episodes later, 
And in my folder of future topics, I just looked the other day and there's over 200 in there. Oh, yeah. So it's, a weekly show, that's four more years that I haven't even touched the documents for yet. Oh, yeah. So no, I will never run out of topics. Same. There are fantastic urban legends. Hard, same. Yep. Yep. No, no end of wild and interesting ideas out there to be explored. Oh, and you guys have a slower pace and you'll take several episodes to cover a topic. Yeah. A lot of the time. And absolutely. So, yeah. You've got to be just absolutely drowning in a, a sea of riches for topics you've got to get to. You get it. I do. But still, everybody, send in your recommendations every day. We get them. We love, we love them. <laughs> oh, yeah. No problem there. They... They come in fast and thick and furious. It's a good problem to have. You know what? This, this is totally off topic. We we set this wonderful mood like we're transitioning out here. But I got to ask you because sometimes you'll post hate mail that people send. And <laughs> I don't know how you get under people's skins with these pithy, quick episodes. But like we, we get some unhelpful emails. But boy, you get uh, the real cream of the crop there. Yeah. But really, every science writer gets those. You can be the... The tamest science writer in the world. You can write about dinosaurs and you've just offended someone who's a young earth creation, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Every science perspective on everything offends someone and you might get death threats and everything. In yeah. fact, when we were uh, at the top of the show, when we were talking about uh, science friction and going back to shoot uh, someone talking about COVID. Yeah. I said, well, okay, what COVID experts do I know? And I... I happen to know a, a couple of really good ones. Yeah. I was friends with basically the Dr. Fauci of Brazil and oh. the Dr. Fauci of New Zealand. Oh, wow. And I spoke with both of them. And when I spoke with the lady in Brazil, whose uh, her day job is she's a government scientist, but she works at a university. Actually, she works in a government department. I don't recall which one. But Bolsonaro had just been elected to office Oh, uh -oh. Um, when I spoke to her. And we had the interview set up. We weren't going to go to Brazil. She had a film crew of her own that mm. was going to set up in her office and we were going to conduct the interview remotely. The day before, she called and said, My position has been eliminated. No, it was worse than that. Bolsonaro has said that no scientists may talk to the media, period, oh, about wow. anything. Oh, man. And so we had to cancel that interview. So I went to the lady in New Zealand. I won't give her name uh, because she spoke to me quite passionately. She said, I'm very sorry. I'm not going to do your film. And the reason is because it has absolutely destroyed my life being a COVID communicator during COVID, <sighs> telling people to wear masks and everything. The number of death threats I get, she had to have government security at her house. It was it had made her life a living hell, the threats that she got. Talk about science friction. My goodness. Yeah, I know, right? And she told me, if you do get someone to talk about this, please don't use a woman. Because women get it, wow. get the hate way, way worse. She gets rape threats. I, I, I mean, it's I, and you can you can imagine everyone listening. I know you can imagine. I know you work hard when you're putting your films together to try to get as equal of representation as you can. And what a horrible boondog! It's hard, but I have. do. Yeah. yeah. And so we we got a referral to to the woman who's in the film, Dr. Emily Bailey, and I spoke with her and I said, "Hey, here's what this person said." She said, you shouldn't do it because this, 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 this will happen to you. Well, she was kind of new at the science communication thing. And I said that, said, it's worse than you think. Mm -hmm. So really consider this. But she didn't care. She said, I okay. want to do it. Okay. We had her in the film. And um, she's, so that's, she's still with us? <laughs> she's still with us. <laughs> yes. Okay. And it hasn't, it hasn't been that bad for her. 
But I think that's because she did one film. This is not what she does for a living day yeah. in and day out. But boy, uh, talk do. about an example of what you were trying to demonstrate uh, uh, with the science friction there, the obstruction to science communication, maybe in a different form there. Uh, well, yeah. now, now that we've gotten a little far afield of our nice, tidy cleanup, I also wanted to ask you, so when you're shooting in front of those radio telescopes in the desert, the sun is going down. And did you shoot that all in one night and into the next morning? There is a very good story about <laughs> that do we have another few minutes yeah yeah i want to hear this because you're there so, you're wearing the shirt and i just see uh, you've got the script clearly well prepared in order but every time we see you it's a little darker a little darker the lights come up and then next thing you know it's morning and you're, you're breathing out cold air yes so here's what happened <laughs> so uh, this was all done off of a teleprompter right so we're setting up a teleprompter in the middle of the desert and it was cold it was about 15 degrees uh, very very cold the guys who are off camera they're all wearing parkas and hats and everything. They're they're toasty. I'm sitting there. I mean, you saw what I was wearing. I was wearing a hoodie pullover. Yeah. Now I had very thick, long underwear on, and I had hot packs all over my body. Okay. <laughs> but my head was exposed. And in that cold temperature, for hours and hours on end, it got pretty bad. I had written this to be done chronologically. Mm -hmm. uh, so we actually recorded it in, in the order that it appears in the film. And it was in six chapters. So between each chapter, uh, I would stand up and take a break. They were all about the same length. Mm. Um, the guys would change lenses, whatever they needed to do. Uh, we changed lighting a couple of times, which you may or may not have noticed. Mm -hmm. I hope you didn't notice. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and the idea that I had in my mind was we were going to start in the early evening or late afternoon as the sun's going down and then continue filming in the dark. And it would be completely dark by the end of the film. Mm -hmm. Well, nature had other plans. <laughs> During the third chapter, I began to slur my speech. Oh. And it was really weird. It was like, now I've gotten really, really drunk a number of times in my life to the point that I was slurring my speech. And that's exactly what it felt like. Oh. I'm like, wait a minute. I have not, there's no, I'm not drunk. We had like, you know, a glass of wine at yeah. the house four hours ago. Uh, it It's like, th no, that's not, I don't know what's going on. And- it got really, really bad. We're having to do all of these retakes and retakes and retakes. And finally, I said, <laughs> we had a Tesla parked right next to where we were with uh, 75 degrees in camp mode. Mm. So we had a literal a warming hut with warm bottles of water, more hot packs, and we could retreat to that any time. That was a precaution that we took. Yeah. And so I went and I'm, I'm retreating to the little warming cabin, but it became clear in chapter four that we could not continue. I was just getting worse and worse and worse. And I don't remember who said it, but someone suggested I was going into hypothermia. And that's exactly what was happening. I went into literal hypothermia. Oh, shit. So we abandoned the shoot after chapter four. Oh, my goodness. And we drove back to the house. We were renting a big Airbnb that everyone was staying in, in Bishop. And I took a hot shower. I drank a bunch of hot water. I called my wife, who who's a, a what do you call them? Like a EMT? not search and rescue, but the, yeah, well, all of that training. Mm -hmm. And she said, drink a lot of hot water. So I drank a lot of hot water. And the next thing that I knew, I'm laying on a bed and I wake up. Oh, you passed it's, out? It's like 1 a.m. Yeah, I got out of the shower and everything and fell asleep. And I'm going, it takes me a minute to recollect my thoughts and realize where I, where I am, what's going on. Oh, shoot, we abandoned the shoot. It's now the middle of the night. I ran through the house. Everyone else was asleep. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, having two-thirds of the movie done is as bad as having none of the movie done, mm, mm, literally. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm like 
pounding on everyone's door. Hey guys, we got we got to go back out there and finish because I didn't have enough money. This was an expensive house. Yeah, I didn't oh, yeah. have enough money to do to do another <laughs> Keep that night Airbnb. here with, yeah. with all of these people in the house and feeding <laughs> everyone and everything. So the the cinematographer is saying, you know what? Let's just do it right here in the house. You know, it's it's a black background. It was dark when we left. No one will know the difference. I can light it the same way, hmm. and you'll look like you're in the desert. And I says, that's not that's not good enough. We hmm. we've got to go back out there. And so we're looking at like uh, what time is sunrise, and we decided, okay, at four thirty we'll wake up and we'll go back out there. I was done with the hypothermia. I was recovered. Okay. Okay. So the plan was to set up and start shooting at 4.30 and finish the rest of it. And the idea was, hey, if we do that, it'll actually, the sunrise will be right as we're finishing the movie. Mm-hmm. And that'll make it it's way better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's way better than having it just get dark through the course of the movie rather than we go through an entire night. And then as we're ending the movie, as you may recall, that was the movie a nice ends on touch. a very hopeful note. Yeah. And- to end on a hopeful note, right as the sun cracks the horizon, was an artistic touch that was just glorious. Hey, okay. And so <laughs> we, that's exactly what happened. We ended up driving the whole crew back up there, setting up again in the in the in pitch blackness, <laughs> trying to set up the teleprompter in pitch blackness. And the rule this time was Brian is not allowed out of the car at all unless he's actually on camera. The th- the thing that killed me when I was getting hypothermia was the term special relativity. Oh, I could not, could say, not say special that. relativity. Special relativity. Oh, special man. relativity. I could not say it. So just know as the film progresses that you're watching Brian slowly succumb to hypothermia. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, absolutely true. And and actually, in one of the scenes in which I'm talking, it's sped up. I think eight percent. Oh, just to make you I sound was, less drunk. I was so slow that it didn't sound natural. And I like played with all of these speeds and everything. And at 8%, you didn't notice. Yeah. You didn't notice. I did not pick up on that. Wild. So the, (laughs) the last part of it, we had these two more chapters to go through the teleprompter. We finished it right on cue, right as the sun cracked the horizon. And I started practicing special relativity, special relativity. (laughs) It was happening again. Oh no. I, I was going into it again, but we were done. The, the guys sent me into the car, said, you don't get out of the car. They put everything away. And You're done. Packed, packed the wow. Gear. And we had the whole film instead of two thirds of the film. A second All time. in one night. I, I bet it there's a amazing. lot of people listening. They're like, okay, I'm going to watch it just for this. <laughs> got to watch this guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. freeze to That's death. a selling point. <laughs> and anyone who's done film production who is hearing me going, yep, that checks out. Yep. That sounds all about right. <laughs> yep. The happy accidents yeah. and everything. Yeah. Oh, they're lucky it went so well. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay, there we go. Well, that's another good hopeful note to end on. Brian, thank you so much for uh, for bringing your film to our audience and, and talking through it. And thank you for letting me. I love talking about this stuff. And obviously, I love telling people about the movie. But um, it's such a fascinating and fun topic. I just think it's a wonderful addition to anyone's life is to become more interested in these things. Absolutely. And uh, again, it's theufo.movie. That's where you go to learn more figure out that is actually a website people don't know that dot movie is a is a suffix for websites but yes the ufo dot movie and you can get all the streaming options whatever they are right there and uh, click right on through and watch it on whatever your favorite service if carrie could buy dot horse dot movie makes just as much sense (laughs) (laughs) well thank you again to brian dunning for coming on the show a long time friend of the show and produces so much good research material and science communication at Skeptoid. 
I'd also like to thank Brian Keith Dalton, who wrote our theme music, and Ian Kramer, who is our administrative manager. You can support everything we do here at Oh No, Ross and Carrie by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. There you can contribute to this show and also contribute to a co-op. How cool is that? So become part of the family. Uh, make these investigations possible. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up for you. So uh, please help support and thank you to everybody who does. You can also support us by telling a friend, by leaving a positive review, wherever you happen to listen to the podcast, uh, put in a good word for us or tell a friend, share an episode, put it on social media. And remember... So the UFO movie at the UFO.movie teaches a lot of really cool stuff about the physics of alien visitation and how possible and plausible it might actually be. But it also teaches a valuable lesson, which is something that I talk about all the time on my podcast, Skeptoid at Skeptoid.com. And that's that you should always be skeptical. The following pro wrestling contest is scheduled for one fall. Making their way to the ring from the Tights and Fights podcast are the baddest trio of audio, the hair to beware, Danielle Radford. It really is great hair. The Brit with a permit to hit, Lindsay Cow. The queen is dead, long live the queen. And the fast-talking, fist-clocking Hal Uplin. See, I can wrestle and be an announcer. Get ready for tights and fights. Listen every Saturday or face the pain. Find us on Maximum Fun. No ring the bell. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network. Of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.